Do you have a quiet place like that? A place just for you and God to meet? If you don't have a place like that, if there's not a place in your home or your office, wherever it might be that you've carved out to meet God, you are missing out greatly. This is Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a biographical series of messages looking at the prophet Elijah. We've seen the obedience to God this man had and how God honored him in that obedience. And last week we moved into the last few verses of 1 Kings chapter 18 and began to look at what a man of prayer Elijah was. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy addresses the qualifications God puts on his promise of answering prayers. Let me share with you three guidelines that I think you must consider when you go to God in prayer if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth. First, number one, you must determine if the promise is personal or universal in scope. Is the promise personal or universal in scope? Now, some promises are meant for a particular individual or to a group of individuals, and they are meant for those people alone. For instance, God told Joshua that he wanted him to capture the city of Jericho. And once a day for six days, they were to march around the walls of Jericho. And then on the seventh day, they were to march around that wall seven times, blast the trumpets, and God promised he would just crumble the walls. Now, if you're a Christian military officer, I don't recommend that that's a promise for you to claim. Don't try to apply this strategy in overtaking the city because it's not yours to claim. That was not a universal promise. That was a specific promise. Or take another example, Mark 16 and verse 18. There Jesus said, they will pick up serpents and they will drink any, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, some Christians have tried to claim either a portion of that verse. Most are inconsistent. Occasionally, you'll find one who will try to claim the whole verse. For instance, let me quote from a Tennessee newspaper. The title of the article was, Two Preachers Die in a Test of Faith. Two preachers who had survived the bites of poisonous snakes tested their faith with, faith with strychnine and died a few hours after drinking the poison. Code County officers said the copperheads and the rattlesnakes were handled at the religious service on Saturday night. After the snakes had been handled, Mr. Williams and Mr. Pack drank strychnine as a further test of faith based on a passage in the Bible which they called a promise they believed. Both died shortly thereafter. Friends, it can be dangerous to claim some passages out of context. But even the casual reader of Scripture would know that Mark 16, 18 has a conditional clause to it. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. It was a promise given to the apostles when persecuted and forced to do these things that God would protect them supernaturally. It does not warrant your handling snakes or trying to drink poison. And by the way, this is never modeled as something we should do in the book of Acts, nor is it ever commanded in any of the epistles. 
Why? Because when you let Scripture interpret Scripture and you read the other synoptic Gospels and put it together with Mark 16, clearly it was a promise given to the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 tells us that not everyone can do signs, wonders, and miracles. There were certain signs, wonders, and miracles that authenticated a man to be chosen by Jesus to be one of his apostles. Uh, a good example of this kind of being lived out was Paul. Remember, he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and uh, they were there, and uh, uh, a viper, a snake, crawled out of the fire and bit Paul in the hand, and he was unharmed. Here he is. He's, he's sharing in the love of God and warning people of God's care, and he takes a terrible experience, and he turns it upside down, and that's the perspective we need as Christians. When we are in dire times and difficult, we don't need to moan and groan and weep and, and, and just get all self-centered. We need to preach the gospel because that's the answer to the trouble in America. And so when you claim a promise, you have to determine, one, is the promise personal or is the promise universal in scope? Here's a universal promise that Jesus gave. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, there's a second principle I want us to consider when we try to claim a promise. We must also ask, is the promise conditional? For instance, here's a conditional promise that God gave to the Jewish people in Exodus 15, 26. Let me read it to you. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Now, that's not a universal promise. It's one given to the people of Israel, and contextually, it's time-bound again to the period of the wandering. But its fulfillment is conditioned on their obeying what God says. Now, there are other conditional promises that are universal in scope, that God will only answer if you meet the conditions. For instance, most of you know maybe 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a universal promise, and by universal, contextually, of course, he's writing to the little ones who have come to faith in Jesus. It's a conditional, universal promise given to born-again people. And by the way, 1 John 1, 9 is not a salvation verse used out of context by many pastors and evangelists. Listen, if all you had to do was confess your sin and God would forgive you, and that's what a lot of people think, you ask them, why should God let you into heaven? I've been sorry for my sin, and I've asked God to forgive me. Jesus could say, my father is forgiving. Just be sorry, ask for forgiveness, and he'll forgive you. Could have skipped the cross and ascended right into heaven. But that's not what he does. God has to have a basis, a just basis by which he can shower forgiveness on you. And so if you have come to faith through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what the Bible calls the gospel, the power of God to save you, and then as a saved person, you acknowledge your sin, then not your relationship, which is eternal, but your fellowship with God is restored. 
Let's consider another principle. In addition, is the promise universal in scope or is the promise conditional in nature? That is to say, is there something I must do? A third guideline we must consider when claiming a promise is the promise qualified by another passage of scripture. Is the promise qualified by other scripture? For instance, take John 14 and verse 13. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever. That's what he says. Okay, Lord, let me win publisher's sweepstake. No, that, that promise is further qualified by a verse like 1 John 5.14, which says this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. So the whatever you ask in Jesus' name is qualified by the will of God for your life. And then it can be answered. Though that those two promises are further qualified by verses like Matthew 21, 22. Let me read what Jesus said there. In all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I asked for something in Jesus' name. I knew it was according to the will of God because God said explicitly in his word it was his will. And I asked in faith, believing, and he still didn't answer. That's because those three promises are further qualified by verses like 1 Peter 3, 7 or Psalm 66, 18. Let me read 1 Peter 3 uh, in verse 7 to you. Peter exhorts husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, men, while your wife may be the weaker vessel and that she physically is not capable of doing some of the same things that most men can do, she still has an upper hand on you because the rest of the verse says that you are to live with your wives in an understanding way. Peter gives us three reasons why we need to live with our wives in an understanding way. First, number one, since she's a woman. You're partakers of one another. She's your helpmate. She's your completer. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Your partners. Eve was not created from the foot bone or from the... She was created from Adam's side, out of Adam's rib. But second, he tells us we are to live with our wives in an understanding way. Why? Because she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. Not only are we partners, we are equals in the sense that both of us are saved by the grace of God. But there's a third, maybe the capstone reason here in this context anyway, for living with her in an understanding way. Notice, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, men, we can ask in faith, we can ask in Jesus' name, we can ask believing, but if you're dumping on your wife, don't expect God to answer. The same principle is given in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness, not if I sin, but if I regard, if I cling to, if I cherish wickedness, sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And that's why James, he's writing to saved people. And in James 5.16, he says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Understand, he's not talking about positional righteousness, 
The day you were saved, God credited you. He gave you what we call imputed righteousness. You have the righteousness of God in Christ. He's not speaking of imputed positional righteousness. He's speaking of practical righteousness, of someone who's walking in purity of heart with God. And friends, it can be exciting to pray when God has given you a promise that you can personally claim. It will put a passion, it will put a fervor. And so God said to Elijah here in our text, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. And he passionately claims that promise from God. Now, in addition to the root of, the pro- of his passion, I want you to see the fruit of his passion. Point B, if you've downloaded the outline there at communitybiblechurch.us, the fruit of his passion. And there are two truths that jump out at me here in verses 42 to 44 that will typically characterize passionate prayer. And remember, it's passionate prayer that pleases God because he says the effectual fervent prayer prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Now first notice the place of his prayer because Elijah separates himself from the others in order to pray. Look at verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah again, he could read the heart of this wicked man. He had just preached a sermon against idolatry filled with beautiful illustrations, namely fire coming down from heaven. But there's no conviction No remorse like the rest of the people of Israel had. It doesn't lead him to repentance. So what's he going to do? He's going to go up and eat and drink. Why? Because he's ruled by the flesh. Ahab cares about nothing but Ahab. And his focus, after what should have brought him on his face before God and said, Oh, I'm a sinful man, Elijah. How do I get right with God? No. He goes off to feed his face. King Ahab is like a lot of people who come to church. Their bodies are here, but their heart and their minds are a million miles away. In fact, your spiritual state very often can be seen by what you think about during church and where you rush off to immediately when it's over. Some people cannot sit for a one-hour sermon from the Word of God, but they can go to a ball game or a race and sit there for hours on the end. Many times a pastor opens up the word of God and he preaches about sin and they're just unmoved. They think it's for someone else, but it has nothing to do with them. Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, or Carmel if you prefer, and he crouched down on the earth and his face was between his knees. Now here's a picture of Mount Carmel. This is uh, about uh, two-thirds of the way up. Some of you have been here. You've been at the top. You can't make it out probably. There's a little white building up there at the very top, just there on the horizon. And most of you have seen it from the top. This is the other side, a picture taken. And if you go all the way to the bottom of the hill, the very brook that's mentioned in the text you can see And if you're on the top of the hill and you look over the other side of that mountain, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful place. It's a secluded place. And it's a place where Elijah wants to go and pray. Now, Elijah had not eaten or drinking all day. But this spiritual giant of a man, like Jesus, he said, I have food 
that you don't know about. His food was to do the will of God, and he was there for a reason. The mediocre believer often has needs and desires of the flesh that they want to feed first, and their spiritual desires are weak and fledging unlike this spiritual giant who wanted to be alone with God. He had a place to meet God, and don't underestimate the need for a place. Now, I know you can pray anytime, anywhere. God commands you to pray without ceasing. But he also underscores in a number of illustrations and through the instruction of Christ himself that a place is important as well, a quiet, secluded place. Now, I can pray sitting in my car while in traffic with my eyes open, and I should do that. That's part of God's commands. But there are times when it needs to be secluded, There are times my wife and I have spoken, you know, all the kids are everywhere, the grandkids are everywhere. And then there are times when it's just her and me, and she says, I need you to listen. Do you have a quiet place like that? A place just for you and God to meet? If you don't have a place like that, if there's not a place in your home or your office, wherever it might be that you've carved out to meet God, you are missing out greatly. While you're here, turn over to Matthew 6. Don't lose your place. Go to the first book in the New Testament. It's the Gospel of Matthew. And turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is standing on the upper side of a hill, and so we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you know this sermon, Jesus gives a sketch of kingdom righteousness, what it looks like for someone who is a member of his kingdom. And he does so by giving six illustrations through the sermon. And he uses the repeated formula all the way. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And the whole verse that unlocks the entire sermon is Matthew 5 and verse 20. Let me read it to you. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, who were considered like the most religious hoi polloi of the day, unless it surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so in this sermon, Jesus contrasts Pharisaical righteousness with true saving righteousness that God gives to the believer by grace, a kind of righteousness that changes you from the inside out. You see, pharisaical righteousness was external, it was earned, it was merited, where God's righteousness is internal and it's given as a gift by grace. Theirs had to do with doing. God's primarily has to do with being that results in the right kind of doing. Their righteousness involved external acts only, where God's righteousness involves attitudes that accompany those acts. And so to contrast the two forms of righteousness, he gives a number of illustrations. For instance, look at Matthew 6 in verse 5. He points here to the subject of prayer. Let me read it to you. When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, the play actors, talking about the Pharisees. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now notice in verse 5, Jesus said they love to stand and pray. And you might want to underline that word love in your Bibles, agapao. It's a willful kind of love, not the kind of love that is used in other contexts of God's love. You see, the problem is... 
that they do not love prayer, nor the God to whom they're supposed to be praying. What they do love is the praise of men, the public affirmation that their kind of prayer gives. Now, there's nothing wrong, by the way, with standing when you pray. There are several instances in Scripture when God's people stand and pray. In fact, for the Jew and for the Christian in the early church, it was usually standing in prayer, and that's when they lifted their hands, not when they got some feeling out of a song. I'm not speaking against that. But that was the context of lifting holy hands to God in the context of prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with standing, and there's nothing wrong with praying in the synagogue with God's people. For that matter, there's nothing wrong with praying on the street corners. To carry your prayer from the secluded realm of the people of God into a public secular realm, there's no prohibition against that in Scripture, and there are many illustrations of it. In fact, in the book of Acts, you see many illustrations of public prayer, and even in the model prayer that Jesus has just taught. He says, when you pray, our Father, not my Father, but our Father, there is an implication there that this is a corporate time of prayer that the people of God, you know, express to the living God. So Jesus is uncovering here the motive behind Pharisaical prayer. These men who love to stand in the synagogue or in a prayer meeting or on the street corner or in a restaurant, why? To be seen by men. So behind their prayer lurked a sense of deep pride. They just wanted to be seen by men. And Jesus said, yep, they've got their reward in full. That is the praise that men will give them. And Christians today sometimes do the same thing. They try to impress others by the way they pray, or sometimes they're giving a sermon in their prayer, like they're, who are you talking to, God or to us? And they teach in their prayer. And I hope you know that when you are praying to be seen by men, it's insulting to God. So beginning in verse 6, Jesus begins with a contrast. Circle that little three-letter word, but. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Look, the real test of your prayer life is not what you do in a public Wednesday night prayer meeting or in your adult Bible fellowship, but what you do all alone, just you and God. And so the Pharisee didn't go to the synagogue to worship God, but to build his reputation before men. Now, please understand the giving of alms the, the giving of praise and prayer, the giving of oneself and fasting. There's three public expressions for all of those in the New Testament. But hypocrisy is when there's an ulterior motive in fasting and praying or giving to be seen by men. And when you do that, you're just nothing more than a religious exhibitionist, and it's sickening to God. I mean, how can we pretend that we are praising God when in reality we're just seeking the praise of people? Jesus calls that hypocrisy. It's play acting. The word literally means a play actor. So is your public prayer legitimate? Ask yourself. Well, what's my private prayer life like? Look, if, if you come here on a Wednesday night and you pray and you haven't been alone with God that day or since the last Wednesday night in prayer, it's sheer hypocrisy. 
And so the real test is not what you do in public, but what you do in private. And so Jesus said, go into your inner room, tarmeon. It's a Greek word that is used of a secret room, of a storehouse, a private room. Go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. I hope you have a place like that to be alone with God. Maybe it's in your home, maybe it's in your office, maybe it's in your car during your lunch hour where you can close out the whole world with all of its distractions, a place to shut out the onlooking eyes of men and to shut yourself into the presence of God. Jesus said, here you are to pray to your father who's in secret. Why? Because he's wanting, he's waiting to welcome you. And there's nothing that destroys prayer sometimes like human spectators. And there's nothing that enriches prayer when you're alone with God and you are there in his presence and you know it. God sees not just the outward. He sees the heart. He sees not just the one who is praying. He sees the motive for which we are praying. So my point here back in 1 Kings 18 is that we need, go back there if you will, we need a place to pray. So here in 1 Kings 18, the fruit of Elijah's passion is important not only as we consider the place of his prayer, but also the posture of his prayer. Look now at verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel And he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Now, the Bible here mentions his posture, not because this is necessarily a pattern that we must strictly follow, but I believe that God highlights it here with this man's effectual fervent prayer that James illustrates from because his posture displays the inward reality of his earnestness. I mean, how earnest and passionate can you be in prayer when you're just laying down in bed? You could be, but you're half asleep sometimes. Are you more earnest in your prayer when you're in a prayer closet and you're in your face before God or when you're just driving down the road? You could be just as earnest driving down the road, but typically, typically, the posture of your prayer is an expression of the earnestness of your heart. Do you remember the Lord Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane? In Mark's gospel, the 14th chapter, it says that he fell to the ground. Luke reminds us he knelt down. And Matthew elaborates further, he fell on his face and prayed. God the Son prostrated himself before God the Father. And he cried out, oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Have you ever wanted the will of God so passionately and earnestly that you are on your face before God? And very often, some Christians have never found themselves there because they are proud and self-sufficient. Coming before God in prayer often requires humility and brokenness on our parts. James reminds us that the effectual prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And part of being effectual includes being totally transparent before God. Tomorrow we'll conclude our message, Elijah the Prayer Warrior. To listen to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 
and requesting program ELI4. Join us again tomorrow when again we search the scriptures. For thousands of years, no place on earth has been more precious to God's people than the land of Israel. It was here that God first chose to bring the Messiah, and it is where he will usher in his second coming. Nothing compares to visiting the places you've only read about. For those serious students of the Bible, a trip to Israel adds depth and interest to every page of Scripture. Search the Scriptures Israel tour is far more than a vacation. It's a spiritual journey that will impact your faith in an intense way. I'd love for you to go with me to Israel September the 28th to October the 8th or October the 7th to October the 17th. If you would like to have information, you can go online to stsisraeltour.com. The price is inclusive for everything. Airfare, hotels, three meals a day, tips, everything.